All right, welcome back. This is Larry Wilmore. I'm Black on the Air. World's still standing. America's still here, you guys. It's a miracle. America's here. It's a miracle. After the the hell in Helsinki. Whew. Man, what a week. This president, I mean, he's going to give us all heart attacks, you guys. It is crazy. I have never seen anything like what just happened in Helsinki. By the way, we have a real, real, really good show today. Um... Um, Iptihaj Muhammad, who was a, a Muslim fencer for the U.S. Olympic team, first one to wear a hijab, I believe, is on the show. We had a great conversation last week. I think you'll enjoy that. But, man, there's so much to unpack in this Trump stuff. God, it just it keeps getting worse. Here, here is a, a, um, an equation that I'm going to give you, a Trump equation, okay? It will always get worse and in a way you never imagined. Okay, just remember that. That's always going to continue to happen. And mark my words, okay? This this is going to always happen. It will always get worse, will always happen. And the second part, in, in a way you could never imagine. Okay, I could never imagine Donald Trump in front of the world, standing in front of the world with the leader of, you know, <laughs> the ex-KGB officer, <laughs> Um, his boy Putin standing right there and throwing his own intelligence agency, you guys. He's standing with an ex-KGB officer. Think about this. He's standing next to an ex-KGB officer and he throws his own intelligence agency under the bus. Basically saying, fuck them. I don't believe that. It's all a witch hunt, blah, blah, blah. Putin told me this. I I, what am I supposed to do? Not believe him? I don't know. He seems believable because he wants to be liked by him. And all this all this just sick, narcissistic stuff is uh, to see it played out on that stage was, uh, it was crazy. And, I mean, everybody has lost their minds. <laughs> Rightly so. It's amazing to me how many people on the right are finally losing their minds. There was I, I tweeted out a really nice article by George Will. Um, if you're following me, some of you may have read it, at Larry Wilmore. Um, but there are other people out there who are tweeting stuff too. But, of course, our, our buddies, Fox News, Conservative Talk Radio, some of these other outlets are still defending Trump. And he can't even defend himself. You know, doing this bullshit, trying to walk it back the other day, saying he meant to say would not instead of would, you know, changing his words or whatever. We're not stupid. But what's interesting is that it's so apparent to me that Trump is an empty suit, right? He's just an empty suit. And Fox News keeps trying to put a person. They keep trying to put a human being into this empty suit. But the suit remains empty, and that is a problem. No matter how many times they try to build this human being and put it in this empty suit, this suit remains empty. It has no thoughts, no actual opinions, no humanity, no moral center, no moral compass, and it only exists to applaud itself over and over and over again. It's like a horror movie. It's this monster <laughs> that was created. It is programmed to applaud itself over and over again. It's fascinating, you guys. It, 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 it's hard to believe. And the job of his minions, Fox News, most Republicans, conservative talk radio, and stupid people who still support him. That's right, stupid people. Because, right, people that first voted for Trump, fine. You, you were tricked. I'll give it to you. But if you still support him, 
sorry, you're stupid at this point, okay? You're just stupid. And I don't mind saying that. I'm not saying deplorable. I'm not using clever words. You're just stupid if you still support Trump, period, okay? But it is their job. It is their job now, it's a very interesting job, to explain to us, the normal human beings, what the empty suit really means, right? And it's because the empty suit has chosen to use English that contains words that we are already familiar with, words that have meaning, right? Words that have weight, words that have nuance. So their job of interpreting is very problematic because when they explain to us what he really means, it's amazing to me. Like Sarah Huckabee, Colonel Sanders, they treat us like we're just learning to speak English as they are currently speaking it to us. That's how they treat us. Like this, we are the aliens and we're learning to speak this alien language as they are currently speaking it to us. And even though we clearly hear the words that he is saying, and we clearly get the meanings from those words, no, 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 no. Their job is to reinterpret it for us because we actually don't understand English. We're the aliens that don't understand anything. It's amazing to me, you guys. I mean, when you watch these press conferences, The level at which they think we're all stupid is so amazing to me. I've never seen anything like it. And it's funny because I I actually rejected the notion that the Trump campaign colluded with Russia during the campaign, you know, that somehow they were in cahoots with them for the campaign. I think Russia meddled with it, of course. I believe the intelligence meddled with the election. They've done it before. And, you know, President Obama first came out and said it. Of course I believed him. But I just didn't think they were smart enough to do it. And granted... I understand the people out there saying, well, Larry, maybe it was because they were dumb enough to do it. And that actually is not a bad theory. <laughs> maybe they were dumb enough to do it, not smart enough. Okay, you're right. You're right. Okay, possibly. But I still don't think so. I still don't think it happened. But there is something more insidious going on. I do not believe they con- colluded with Russia during the election. However, I do believe that this president is currently colluding with Russia in plain sight. And that is a lot worse. Okay? And this is why he should be impeached right now. He is currently on the world stage in front of all of us, colluding with Russia to our faces and daring us to do something about it. Example. All right. So we have no idea what he said to um, his boy Putin. Or he's Putin's boy. I guess, whichever way you want to say. But he comes out, you know, when he was uh, uh, not wanting to indict uh, Putin in front of everybody. Says he actually made me a great offer. It was really an amazing offer, you know, where um, he would allow our uh, special investigators, I guess Mueller and them, to come over and, and see the 12 people who were indicted be interrogated by Russia or something like that. This is insane, you guys. So apparently... Putin made him an offer that Trump can watch Russia interrogate the people who supposedly hacked our election. And in return, this is the part that isn't talked about that much, but in return, Trump also gets to watch Putin interrogate a a former U.S. official who was in Russia who they basically want to arrest. Apparently, Putin has some information that Trump likes to watch. I don't know where he would get that from. 
<laughs> Apparently, he has that information. But this is insidious again. So let me read you this article. I'll treat it out to Putin asked Trump to let Russia question McFaul Winehouse sense. Okay. I'll just treat it out. So, you so Trump made no commitment, but didn't rule it out. Sanders says, President Donald Trump entertained a proposal from Vladimir Putin to let Russian authorities pose questions for the former U.S. ambassador to Moscow, Michael McFaul, White House Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders said yesterday, said Wednesday. So this comes from, from Sarah Huckabee Sanders, right? Trump made no commitments to the Russian leader when Putin raised the idea at a private meeting in Helsinki on Monday and is going to meet with his team, Sanders said, allowing the interrogation of a former American ambassador who held diplomatic immunity while in Moscow would be an unprecedented breach in protections traditionally provided to the nation's foreign service. In exchange for the opportunity to have McFaul and a number of other Americans question, questioned by the Russians, you guys, the Russian president offered to let special counsel Robert Mueller observe interrogations of 12 Russian intelligence agents indicted by a U.S. grand jury last week for hacking Democratic Party email accounts. I'll let you watch this, and I'll let you watch this. Sanders said there was some conversation about Putin's proposed exchange during Trump's summit with the Russian leader in Helsinki on Monday, where the two leaders spent about two hours together, accompanied only by translators. State Department spokesman Heather Nauert told reporters Wednesday that such a grilling of a former diplomat would be a grave concern to our former colleagues. You think? She said the Russians are making absolutely absurd assertions about 11 American citizens they want to question. Although she declined to rule out the Russian proposal when asked about it repeatedly. Trump is so, he's so fucking stupid, you guys. He thinks this is a great deal. Okay. McFaul, who served under President Barack Obama, there's your key right there, and now teaches at Stanford, wrote on Twitter that he hopes the White House corrects the record and denounces in categorical terms this ridiculous request from Putin. Otherwise, he said, it creates a moral equivalency between a legitimate U.S. indictment of Russian intelligence officers and a crazy, completely fabricated story embedded by Putin. Putin outlined his proposal at a news conference following the summit and said that his government would like to question Hermitage uh, Capital Chief Executive Officer William Browder, a longtime Kremlin antagonist who lobbied the U.S. government to adopt a law authorizing sanctions against Russian officials accused of human rights abuses. Putin didn't mention McFaul to reporters, although his government often criticized him when he was the U.S. envoy in Moscow. And Trump called Putin's proposal to allow questioning of Americans. Trump called Putin's proposal to allow questioning of Americans and reciprocal questioning an interesting idea and an incredible offer at the news conference. Seriously, guys, what the flying fuck? It goes on to say he wants to work with his team and determine if there's any validity that that would be helpful to the process, Sanders said. But again, we've committed to nothing. It was an idea that they threw out. Putin has been harassing me for a long time, McFaul said on Twitter earlier Wednesday. That he now wants to arrest me, however, takes it to a new level. I expect my government to defend me and my colleagues in public and private. Good luck. In 2012, Russian state uh, television, and then it goes on to say a little bit more that but guys, this is what we're facing. He is, he's, he's colluding with Russia in front of us and daring us to do something about it. He should be impeached right now. I mean, think about how upside down everything he does. This is a man who's ending the military exercises in South Korea, meant to remind Kim Jong-un that he can't just do what he wants. Um, and he's, he's doing it to appease him and said it's a waste of money. Instead... 
he wants a military parade that costs roughly the same to remind the world that he wants to be like Kim Jong-un and to do whatever he wants. All right? This shit has got to stop, you guys. It's There's no longer a conspiracy. We don't need a special investigation. We just need to keep our eyes and ears open and especially our actions centered around impeaching this motherfucker now, you guys. This shit has got to stop. All right. I don't have any more. Okay. We have good to talk with Ifti Hodge. We got to lighten this shit up today. Ugh, I'm so upset about this. Maybe I should talk about my Lakers. No, I'll do that next time. All right. Ifti Hodge Muhammad. We're going to talk about some fencing. We're going to talk about uh, a civilized uh, fighting sport right after this. All right. Welcome back. Guys, we have a very special guest here at The Ringer. And we're in the big Ringer studio, so if there's an echo, it's that big studio today. She's the author of the book, a new book coming out. I don't think it's out yet, but it's about to drop. About to drop. Yep. Called Proud, uh, My Fight for an Unlikely American Dream. And then there's another version, Living My American Dream. Just read them both. She's the first female Muslim athlete to medal at the Olympics, Ibtihaj Muhammad. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy to have you here. We talked about having you on the show a long time ago. And so I've been excited for a long time. I love your story. I love everything about it. But every part of it is so interesting. And just the fact that the whole fencing aspect is one of the more fascinating things. So I have a lot of things I want to ask you about. How did you first get interested in fencing? I played so many different sports growing up. Mm -hmm. I'm from a family of five kids. I'm right Mm -hmm. in the middle. And I'm African-American. Like, we played outside till the streetlights came on. You had to play a sport. You weren't given a choice. Did you have both the unstructured play like that and your parents wanted you to be in an organized sport? Yeah. So so they knew where we were from three to five after school. Right. So we had to play a sport. It's one of the best babysitting uh, secrets, too, is put your kids in sports. Working class parents, yeah. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Um, But also my parents, you know, saw the value of sport Uh and leading active, healthy lifestyles, but also um, kind of forging healthy and like what they saw as like kosher relationships with your friends Mm -hmm. and your classmates. Did your parents play sports at all? My dad did. Mm -hmm. He's one of 12 kids play football. Mm -hmm. Uh, My mom did not play sports at all. Mm -hmm. But um, again, I think as you know, my mom was a teacher and she like, she got out of school when we got out of school. So there was like that, that gap in time. She was like, no, I need to know where you are. Was (laughs) your father a police officer? Police officer. yeah. Yeah. Both retired now. Yeah, mm-hmm. so it is that real working class, hard scrabble, we're not kidding around. Type oh, of yeah, my parents right? were no joke. Like, yeah. I remember my parents putting our town recreation book mm-hmm. from a small town in New Jersey. Yeah. And they put the Maplewood Rec book in front of us mm-hmm. every year. And it's like, what sport do you want to try? And we got to try different things. Yeah. I tried tennis, I played softball, I ran track for a while. And for me, as a Muslim kid, parents always had to change the uniform. Uh huh. I always wore, like, if my teammates wore tank tops, I wore, like, a short sleeve shirt underneath. Or if they okay. wore shorts, my mom always got me spandex. Uh-huh. And now, that- is there an age issue for, uh, for lack of a better word, modesty with girls and how they should dress? Like, is there a certain age where you first have to wear a hijab? Or, or does that come when you're a certain age or yeah. that type of thing? So— 
Muslim women who choose to wear the hijab mm -hmm. often start to wear it when they reach puberty. Okay. So right. I started at 12. Right. So that yeah. way you can make a, a decision for yourself to do this, right? Right. Okay, got yeah. it. Um, but when you're younger, there's still uh, there's still uh, a modesty approach to yeah. how you should dress anyway, right? Yeah, I mean, right. in my family, we still adhered to some type of uh, form of modest dress. Like, I right. don't ever remember wearing, like, super short shorts right. or tank tops, really, even. I would wear short sleeves or wear uh -huh. shorts, but they weren't, like, hot pants or did anything you, did, like that. Did you ever rebel against that? Did you have that? Or did any, did any of the other kids— uh, Feel uh, like they were missing out because the culture was doing something different. I don't know. I, mm -hmm. I mean, I that's something that for sure. I think a conversation I would have with my siblings about. Mm -hmm. I think the the limitations are different for boys and girls mm -hmm. because for me and my sisters, we're visibly Muslim, right? Whereas with my brother, he has the luxury of just kind of passing and operating, right? Um, in a way that kind of you know, normalizes him. Yeah. And when you wear hijab in an area of the world where there are not a ton of Muslims, you kind of stick out like a sore thumb, especially yeah. in the suburbs in New Jersey. Yeah. Um, that's what's interesting about being a young Muslim and growing up with, like I always said, the uh, to make an, a, a crude uh, ex um, metaphor for this, but um. Like gay and black, people have always said are related in terms of how they're being prejudiced. And to me, I always thought the the common thing was invisibility, but it was in different ways. You know, gays had to stay in the closet, so they were invisible because they didn't want to be seen. But blacks, people just didn't see them. You know, right. <laughs> were just invisible. You know? Crazy enough, that still happens. Yes, right? exactly. Yeah. So what's interesting is that people ha have found different ways to hide out the parts of them that they don't want to have to deal with because it's a hassle because it's either going to get made fun of or that type of thing. Jewish people many times wouldn't even say that they were Jewish. Many mm -hmm. times they would change their names. And I think a lot of it is just for the hassle of people not making fun of them or asking mm -hmm. questions and all that stuff. So you're already black, but the Muslim part is that extra sauce, right? But yeah. you, you know, interestingly enough, that's a question I get a lot. Yeah. Do you ever at did I ever at any point say, I'm not going to wear the hijab because it's too difficult? Mm -hmm. And I think that you hit the nail on the head in that if I were to choose not to wear hijab, mm -hmm. I'm still black. Right. So I still have, you know, right. this the over, otherness. Right, this otherness. Yeah. I'm still existing as an other in these spaces. So for me, it's not like my life would have been easier in any way. Right. So that's why I think for me, I've never really struggled with the hijab because I was always yeah. seen as different anyway. And it's interesting because your brothers who don't have that outward appearance of the religious otherness mm -hmm. don't have to deal with it in the way that you and your sister did, I would think. Right? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Like my brother was the cool kid growing up. That oh, everyone really? wa <laughs> oh, yeah. Everyone wanted to be friends with. Yeah. Um, so your older brother? My older brother. Mm -hmm. We're only 18 months apart. Okay. And it was great for me because— I, even though I was bullied a lot as a kid, always had my brother really? for backup. Oh, yeah. Um, I talk about it a lot in my book, but mm -hmm. I had, In what you know, ways were you bullied? Um, I had people who would physically bully me. Mm -hmm. I have a few stories of those uh, moments in my my childhood where that happened. Um, but Kids are so cruel, kids are, man. Awful. I always thought we don't need waterboarding. Just put some middle schoolers, <laughs> like <laughs> take them to Guantanamo and have them grill. Awful. <laughs> I know. They're actually awful. Yeah. Um, but I mean, thank God I survived <laughs> those moments. I mean, I, I 
didn't see the the physical aspect of bullying, uh-huh. it, to me, I always felt blindsided by it because I didn't expect it. I didn't come right. from a family where physical abuse was normal. We didn't, mm-hmm. that wasn't how, you know, we communicated or operated in my family. So right. when it happened to me as a kid, I was always very surprised by it. Mm-hmm. Um, I recount a story in my book of when a, a kid in my class punched me in the arm. Mm. And was this someone you knew or just, just a, a yeah, random a kid? kid? I mean, I grew up in the same town from kindergarten all the way through. So, so knew each other. I knew we all knew each right. other. And I mean, for me, again, it was great because I had my brother. If you, if I got bullied, right. I always told my brother and my That's brother awesome. like handled it for me. But right. um, no, it can be it can be really hard. I remember being followed home by a group of girls and I was they were older than me, but it was really? snowing. Oh, yeah, it was snowing. They would follow you? Followed me home. We were it was snowing and we got out of school early. It was an emergency like snow day. Mm-hmm. So I had to walk home. My mom didn't pick me up. There's so much snow. And I was so small. I remember having trouble, like, picking up my foot to get over, like, every step. People right. hadn't shoveled yet. And these girls followed me home. They pushed me in, down in the snow over and over and over. And I just remember, like, crying and wondering where my brother was and if my mom was going to pull up to save me. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, even in these moments, for whatever reason, we make it out on top. And I think that yeah. in my in my case, it's made me more resilient for sure. Yeah, it is interesting that some of the people that get, you know, pushed the most end up being the most resilient in situations, you know. And then uh, how old were you when you first uh, were introduced to fencing? I was 12 when I first saw fencing. Although it's young, but if you're going to do something professionally at a high level, many people start those things pretty early, like even seven years old or seven's kind of young for fencing. but Well, so... There's, it's twofold. Mm-hmm. I saw fencing at 12 at a stoplight with my mom in our town. We saw athletes are covered. You know, they have on long jackets, long pants. My mom's like, boom, you're doing it. Don't know what it is. Hilarious. So your mom, it was yeah. a fashion choice. <laughs> no, not even. It was a religious choice, right? I know, but it's religious like, fashion. Yeah, right, she's yeah. like, that fits in with the tenets of our faith. Is there like a Muslim accessory store where you can like buy sports? Right. <laughs> there should be like a Muslim Luluman or Lululemon. Oh, Lulu, well, Lulu Nike, has, Nike has the pro hijab. Right. Yeah. Oh, uh, okay. Their new but, sports hijab that they've released a few months ago. Right. Yeah. So your mom, she's on it. She's like, I don't always. Gotta, right. No, my mom's a unicorn. Yeah. I don't know how, but she like always finds a way to make everything work and the world exists in a good way, but... Did your mom grow up Muslim? She didn't. My she, mom, both my parents converted to Islam in the 70s. Do you know why? So I recount actually both mm-hmm. of my parents' stories of conversion in my book. My in mom... Book, proud, everybody. Yeah, I'm proud. <laughs> <laughs> my mom uh, had a family member who uh, was married to a Muslim guy. Mm-hmm. And my mom grew up she was born in 58. She grew up in uh, East Orange, New Jersey. And mm-hmm. around her, she had, you know, parents who indulged in alcohol. Mm. And she saw drugs and alcohol and abuse happen. Yeah. Not just in the walls of her home in terms of alcohol and, and abuse, but also outside with friends and um, their parents and, you know, cousins. And my mom had made a conscious decision that that's not what she wanted for herself. Mm -hmm. So my relatives have always, they say that my mom's always been kind of like different from everyone else and that she- Kind of an old soul probably. Yeah, like she made this decision that, you know, she wasn't going to do that from early on. Yeah. Um, Because I think she saw how it changed the dynamics of even her own parents' relationship. Yeah. 
But anyway, she had a family member, one of her, her cousins who was married to a Muslim guy, and he had a Quran on his coffee table that when she went to visit, she mm-hmm. would read. But also, she really liked the way that her cousin's husband treated her. And I she think— She saw that example and thought, okay, that's a better example over there than this one over here. Yeah. And she kind of saw religion as the, as the arbiter of that example. There's a reason that example exists, mm-hmm. and religion is probably that reason. Right. Uh-huh. But then also that in, within the faith, there was no drinking. There was no alcohol, right? Mm-hmm. There was, like, no premarital sex. All those things, mm-hmm. I think— there was structure. Or at least that those were mom, the rules. Right? Yeah, right, <laughs> right, right. So that was something that my mom saw right. um, that she wanted for herself. Yeah. And she kind of found religion on her own in a way when she got to college. So she converted while she was at Rutgers. Right. It's funny because ironically, that was the start of the rift between Malcolm X and Elijah Muhammad. Oh, yeah. Was, you know, Malcolm saying Elijah Muhammad not obeying the rules that, you know, was supposed to be part of of the Islam faith, faith and nation of Islam. Uh, vis-a-vis young girls and them getting pregnant. Right. That was a huge issue. So my dad was kind of part of that camp. So my Mm -hmm. dad's one of 12 kids. Yeah. Out of my grandma's 12 kids, nine of them converted to Islam. Wow. All during that era that you do see Elijah Muhammad, Malcolm X. And my dad started in the Nation of Islam Mm -hmm. and only after a few years kind of moved more to um, a more traditional form of Islam. Yeah. Like the Malcolm X that you see. Yeah. Um, and I think that the idea of freeing yourself from things that were forced on the African-American community, mm-hmm. like Christianity or conforming to, you know, these different different things that almost feel like we've never been a part of, mm-hmm. right? As black people, we were never made to feel a part of these things. It's like, right. let me kind of re- free myself from this. Let me um, absolve myself from this in a way. And I, I think that that was why my dad converted and his brother. And in those days too, there was even a rebelliousness against this white Nordic Jesus that was being— <laughs> Right. You know, that was always the example oh, yeah. of who Jesus was, you know, this this Swedish-looking Jesus that was on the grass, you know. Right. But also mm-hmm. in that faith faith was used to enslave us. Completely. Right? So it's Absolutely. like, I'm not trying to be a part of that anymore. And that's why you saw so many black people leave Christianity and yeah. join Islam. And that's something that is a huge misconception now. When people think of the Muslim community, what it looks like here in America, they think that we're all immigrants. Right. And it's so not true. More than 30% of Muslims in America have been here since the first slave ship, Mm -hmm. you know, um, and are African-American. And to be fair, too, there's a big history of slavery in the Arab world as well. Mm -hmm. Oh, Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's not like there are clean hands when it comes to religion and slavery. No. In fact, Jesus even defends slavery in some ways right. <laughs> in the Bible. And and the <laughs> the racism that you see yeah. that exists inside and outside of faith, no matter what the faith is, is right. so startling. Yeah. And we still see it today within within Islam. But that is particular, you're right, about the black community in America. There was a rebelliousness against certain general notions that Christianity kind of foisted upon us, you know, even with people naming their kids, you know, more Muslim type names, even right. if they weren't Muslim, you'd right. have Christian people naming yeah. their kids, you know, those names and everything. It was kind of, so that's interesting. Your parents both kind of came at it from different points of view, but kind of landed 
in the same place, I guess, mm-hmm. right? Were they both young when they made that decision? Or? Oh, yeah. I think my dad was still a teen. He might oh. have been 18 or 19. Yeah. But my dad, um, when you have, like, my grandma, we have 12 kids, there's huge age differences. So sure. my dad has right. uh, his oldest brother, my Uncle Hawke. He was kind of the patriarch in the family. My grandma raised all her kids by herself. Mm. And um, my dad's oldest brother who converted earlier on, um, who is quite an age difference between my dad and my oldest uncle. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was kind of the patriarch. And I think that he led a lot of his brothers and his sister to, to Islam. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's great. So, so you had a keen sense of it. Um, even as a, as a young kid, you had a keen sense of your relationship to your religion, I guess is a good way to put it. You were, you were cool about it. You weren't rebellious about it. Um, all the conflict came from the outside towards you, right? So— Or is that fair? Or? Well, when—for me, everything about my life seemed very normal, uh-huh. right? There was a sense of normalcy. Yeah. I feel—I felt like I lived in a bubble for a really long time, yes, right? that's great. That's Grew awesome. up in yeah. the same house, same friends, yeah. same teachers, same environment for such a long time that it wasn't until I started fencing that I realized that my skin color and my— my faith had the ability to change how people treated me. Mm-hmm. It wasn't something I was aware of for a really yeah. long time. Yeah, that's interesting. And within fencing, which is like a very, very white sport, mm-hmm. right? Um, not, a, not a lot of athletes of color, if any at this time. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly no other Muslim kids. I remember having these early memories at fencing competitions of like, you know, shouldn't you be playing basketball or uh you know, parents of other athletes <laughs> asking, awesome. yeah. yeah. But then I, I have no place on a basketball court. Like yeah. I might be able to beat you in horse and that's just about it. But like, I can't right. play at all. Um, but I remember even the parents of other athletes asking if it was safe for me to, to fence with hijab on, like they really cared. They don't care. They just safe for you. Right. And they're safe for their kids. They uh, want to what? make sure their kids are safe. Yeah. It's crazy. Like, like Declare a jihad all of a sudden. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? Like, Hollywood! Ah, now, right? Ah. <laughs> In hindsight, you know, when I look back on these experiences, it's really just like microaggressions. It's like, how do we Those throw this? macroaggressions. Right. It's like, how do we throw this kid off her game? Right? It's like, right, it was right, beating right, right. their kids. So it's like, yeah. let me um, in some way, shape or form, try to like, you know, be an a-hole. Right. right. Well, after middle school kids, uh, parents of kids in sports are the next line of a-holes. <laughs> I, mean, like, I mean, you've seen the tapes of parents fighting like at hockey yeah, games and things like you're that. You're right. It really is amazing. Um, New Jersey high school fencing is a unique beast. In okay, that, what way? Tell me about it. First of all— This is an interesting world to me. Oh, you know? it's, cra- it's yeah. crazy. So there, you don't, you don't hear a lot about fencing. Totally okay. different in, in New Jersey. It's right. wildly popular. There are more, I don't know how true this is, but I've heard there are more fencers in the state of New Jersey, um, or more fencers like per square foot in the state of New Jersey than anywhere else in the world. I love world. that someone made this. Right, this declaration. <laughs> yes, exactly. Like, <laughs> I think we need to measure this, right, yeah. uh, see exactly how it's, many fences It's really are. popular. There's like more than 90 high schools that have it. Why? What's and, up with New Jersey and fencing? What is what is going know. on there? I have no idea. What is the need to parry and thrust in New right? Jersey? Yes. Who knows? Yeah. But, um, you know, you have it at—it's a very expensive sport. So you find okay. it in uh, townships that have higher tax brackets. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so you're limiting the amount of minority access to the sport. Yeah. I always think white people always love to find sports that black people just can't even afford to get in and compete with. Look, as soon as it— so that, as soon as We don't it, have to worry about them playing because they can't yeah, afford it. Right? Wait till it gets a little bit cheaper. We're going to take over. Oh, yeah. um, then it's over. Yeah. <laughs> then it's over. And by the way, there's a Barbie doll coming out uh, yeah. for, for Iptahaj, which is fantastic with her in a fencing outfit. I wish you guys could see it. And this could be a game changer with kids seeing using you as a role model because a lot of times that's the barrier to entry is having a role model who's playing the sport too as well as the money. You, know? There's, you might break down some doors with a Barbie doll. <laughs> I'm, I can't even tell you how excited I am about this shawl. I played, yeah. with, I played with Barbie for like an uncomfortably long time yeah. until I was like 15. Right. Love Barbie. Love the idea of escaping, seeing myself in different spaces. Different yeah. spaces of society tells you you, can, you don't belong, right? Because right. you're a girl or right. because you're black, whatever. I was a doctor. I was a firefighter. I drove a Corvette when I was a kid with my Barbies. I had a pool on the roof. Like, my right. Barbies were lit. But, um, <laughs> again, right. when I talk about my mom and how amazing she is, she only bought me and my sister's brown dolls. That's it. If the doll wasn't black, you couldn't have her. Wow. So when I was a kid walking up and down the toy aisles, if they had two black dolls on the shelves yeah. and I already had them, right, there was no doll for me to buy. Right. Because my mom many. was like, right. no, you can only have a like, black doll. It was like Chrissy, I think was that one. Whatever her <laughs> yeah. name was, I already had her. <laughs> I remember so. <laughs> a black doll named Chrissy. <laughs> right? <laughs> so whatever the Barbie was and I already had her, there was nothing for me to get at the toy store that day. Oh. And, um, Your mom was so racist. Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, my mom was woke before right. woke was a thing. Yeah, that's right. That's um, like, right. my mom was right. so woke when my school teachers weren't teaching us about slavery. Yeah. I My mom was like, you're making a paper mache slave ship to go teach your classmates about wow. slavery. Right? So, there were these efforts. Yeah, and you're like, like any kid, <laughs> how come I have to make a slave right? ship? <laughs> <laughs> I look, I, I tell you, like, my mom, um, as, like, in her infinite amounts of wisdom— mm -hmm. Having her kids play with only, like, black Barbies was her effort to make sure we felt represented even in something as simple as doll play. Right. And also, as you say, it normalized you and your world in the home for you. So in your home, you didn't feel like there was something wrong with you. You know, you have right. these examples right there, you know. No, I saw uh, my hair texture and my hair color and my right. skin color all on my dolls. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, the black. Uh, American doll. There was only one. Her name was Addie. My mom made sure that we had that doll. Yeah. Um, and we had those storylines to play out even as kids with, with doll play. And for Mattel to make a doll that wears hijab, that is a fencer and that's black, is revolutionary. There's yeah. so many different avenues you can take that aren't inclusive and aren't diverse in this moment. Mm -hmm. And to make that conscious decision as a company, when I think it's far easier to you know, move in the in the wrong direction. Right. Um, I'm I'm very appreciative. Yeah, you can move in the Papa John's direction. You could, right? <laughs> oh, my God, what a mess. Right. What a mess. No. Wait. I never liked that pizza anyway. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they said, what is it? Why does this pizza have black sauce? I don't understand. <laughs> what is it? Uh, yeah. Anyhow, that, that's a whole side comment. Uh, tell me about your first year in fencing. You're in this new sport. Um, I don't know how much you knew about it when you started. Did you know much about it? It's I knew nothing. Okay. I was two left feet. Mm -hmm. I knew nothing. All I knew is I got to look like everybody else. Okay. Right? So I, from the first time, I, I, the first day of practice, when you get to where everybody has on long pants 
everybody has on long sleeves mm-hmm. and you put the mask on, to be honest, it felt kind of like a superhero, right? Because mm. you're not, I wasn't seen for being black. I wasn't seen for being Muslim. I wasn't seen for being a girl. Yeah. It was just about how good you could be, what you could bring to the table as an athlete. And that was it. Did it feel like it freed you up when you were doing it? Like you felt... Uh, more free around these kids or that type of thing? Or did I you, did it even? So happened my parents moved to a town with the best team in, in the state, right? Arguably the best team in the, in the country. Yeah. They want, we won everything. Things really? are always easy when you win, Were right? you good in the beginning? Oh, I was awful. I wasn't good for like the first three years. No. What, what, what made you stay in it? So three, there's three weapons, okay. foil, epe, saber. They're all a little bit different. The target area is different. The speed is different. Okay, tell me what the difference is. Um. So... Uh, the target area for uh, what is the first mo- well, weapon? Foil. Foil. Target okay. area is like you hit with the point. The target area is the torso. Okay. Then you have epe, which is like the slowest. If you think of fencing like track and field. Okay. Uh, epe is like field. epe is like they're the marathoners, right? Okay. It's a little bit Got slower. It. You can pace yourself. You hit with the point. You can hit anywhere on the body, the head to the toes. With epe. With epe. That's okay. the weapon I fenced for my first three years. Okay. D- how different does it look than the foil? Um, the weapon, not too different. Okay. Yeah. They're very the, similar. The foil is a little bit smaller. Okay. Got it. Uh, the guard is a little bit smaller, but the length of the blade is the same. What What are you posing with on your book? That's a saber. That's what That's I fence a saber. now. Oh, yeah. Okay. So, uh, the weapon I fence now, we're like the sprinters. So everything's okay. super fast. The target area is from the waist up, and wow. you use slashing motions to score. So we're closer to like Zorro. Okay, that's yeah. fantastic. <laughs> and foil is just a point. You're foil just... and epe, you hit with a point. Okay. But with foil, you have to hit the la- the lame, which is a silver jacket you see on the torso. Right. With epe, you can hit the hand, the toe, the face, anywhere. I love that this sport is based on simulated killing. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean, once I upon that. a once upon a time, if you lost, yes. you lost your life. You lost. Right? Losing was losing oh, back yeah. then. Yeah, and it's interesting. Mm-hmm. It's like if you think about it, like life or death when yeah. you're competing. Um, that's what it feels like. Does it give you that rush when you're competing? Does oh, it feel definitely. Like that? Yeah. It feels like that. You know, when you yeah. when you lose, sometimes if it's the winning a medal or right. failing to make an Olympic team, it very much so feels like death. Like I can imagine losing and being on the ground and Forrest Whitaker's over me saying, the power of the Black Panther <laughs> will be taken away. <laughs> right. No! right. Or when you win, you have like a Muhammad Ali moment. Right. Yeah. 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 It's like that. So you weren't very good at first. Did, no. It took you a couple of years to get good, but you were able so, to stay on the team. They didn't kick you off the team or that type of thing. No, Did they I make mean, fun of you for not being that good? The great thing about this team was mm-hmm. that it's like come as you are. It's like you had with with fencing at that level. It's a team sport. Mm-hmm. You have nine people that comprise the crux of the team. They're the ones scoring and actually winning the matches for you. It's kind of like Everybody, gymnastics in that way. Right. right? Everybody yeah, okay. else waiting on the sidelines, hoping to get in. Okay. Probably not getting in because you got, you know, like your starting Golden State five. Is it like wrestling? Or, can you tag in? You know, you can. Thing? You can sub people in. That's awesome. You yeah. can sub people in. But for All the right. most part, I didn't fence too much because uh, in Epe, I wasn't that great. I meant fake. Professional wrestling is what I meant, not oh. real wrestling. Oh, oh okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but I, uh, my, the end of my junior year or beginning of my junior year, my team needed a saber fencer. Okay. And I remember my coach sitting me down and being like, I need you to change weapons. Got it. They were, he was graduating the, the senior class and mm-hmm. they were all saber fencers. And he's like, I need you to switch. And I was like, nah, I'm good. Mm-hmm. You know, like my friends are in Epe. And he's like, no, no, no. Like you have to do this. And right. I remember like being like, 
tearful in that moment because that became my norm. That mm-hmm. epe was my norm. And um, there was some fear involved in changing weapons because mm-hmm. there's this unknown space. I knew nothing about saber. but And is saber considered like the weapon of choice if you're really going to be taken seriously as a fencer? No. It, no, 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 it doesn't no. make a difference, no. right? Okay. Um, it's just kind of like, you know, some people take a, a few weapons to figure out what they're great at. And okay, for me, without having this coach say, you know, you're doing this for the team, whether you like it or not, I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you today. Did the coach see something in you, you think? Yeah. Okay. He, I was <clears throat> I was aggressive Epe Fencer. And mm-hmm. it's funny because Saber fits my personality. Okay. I like, I'm a problem solver. I like to figure out things really quickly. Uh-huh. I move pretty fast. I feel like I'm pretty athletic. And I, when I ran track as a kid and I was running distance events, I hated it. Yeah. But like I could sprint, but hated distance events. And to me, um, I gravitated to Saber more because you had to think on the fly. You had to be a de- decision maker. Mm-hmm. And so this weapon that I fence now is more fitting to my personality and who I am. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I owe so much to this coach for kind of forcing me to wow. change. Because, That's awesome. That's yeah, rare. I mean, without have. having that decision, like, who knows? Maybe I'd actually be the neurosurgeon I plan to be. <laughs> yeah. It's like when you hear about uh, drama students who pull a kid, puts them in a play, and then acting becomes a love and they become right. a famous actor. You know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, teachers can be angels. You know, I have a lot of teachers in my family too. They, it's so, I always get so mad when people are shitting on, excuse me, you know, teachers and all that kind of stuff, you know, cause they, their job is so hard and the things that they can do for kids is so amazing too. You know? Oh yeah. You can, I mean, yeah. a good teacher or a bad teacher can totally change your trajectory. Completely. You know? Yeah. You know, um, yeah, and teachers can hold you back in in the Big opposite time. type of way, too, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, you talked about experiencing anxiety a whole time. I was reading an interview when you were on Team USA. So, oh, so tell me this. So how do you go from that? You're doing that in high school, right? Mm-hmm. You're on a great, you're at a great school. So mm-hmm. You obviously distinguish yourself then on that team once you got to Sabres, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, so how do you go from that to Team USA? So um, I was recruited. Mm-hmm. as a saber fencer because I started to make a name for myself in the state. Right. And um, am recruited to different universities. My immediate plan at 12 years old when I first saw fencing was large family, working class parents need to use the sport to go to a good school. That was your ticket. You knew that, that was, immediately. Right? Oh, yeah. Got when it. I looked at the top 10 schools, they all had fencing teams. Yeah. So I was like, perfect. So this is why I'll fence. So fencing was never like, Oh, I love this sport. I want to do it forever. For me, it was a means to an end. I love how you had so much clarity at such a young age. I have always been a planner, like, my whole life. Right. You (laughs) get that from your mom, you think? I don't know where Uh I get it from. I'm not sure. I'm, like, very type A. Uh Like, my sisters think I'm crazy. I'm, like, very type A. (laughs) Right. Some type A's aren't crazy. Yeah, right? Maybe. I think there's a fine line between um, being an Olympian and being crazy. Why is that? It's so hard. I feel like only crazy people even embark on the journey because it's yeah. so hard. Yeah, I've always I was telling somebody the other day. I used to lament the the journey of uh, ice skaters because at um at a young age, the, like many ice skaters start like at five or six. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like ballet and gymnastics. You know, kids are chosen pretty early. They sacrifice so much growing up. You know, they miss dances, they miss events with friends because oh, they have yeah. to practice all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, and then if they're at the top of the game, 
They go to the, you know, they go to all these championships and these events. They might travel around the world. And then the top of it is the Olympics. And then if they're really good, they'll win a gold medal in the Olympics. Yeah. And then right after that, they're snooping the ice capades. Like, that's what they have to look forward to. Yeah. It's like, well, this is not fair. Yeah. <laughs> like, this I whole mean, journey. I mean, Michelle Kwan is one of my good friends. <laughs> yes. And she's one of the most brilliant people I know. Yeah. And has, I'm telling you, when she's just brilliant. Yeah. It's like she took everything you just said. Right. And like. I mean, she's just great. Well, she was one of the first to change that dynamic in she ice is. skating. Yeah, yeah she, she was. really, yeah, she reinvented the the role of ex ice skater. Right. Like, in other words, I did that joke before she did that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but then also, I think that she's great because she shows other athletes what can happen yeah. when you're finished. You know. Right. But um, anyway, no, I think that in having um, in having my mom in my life and mm-hmm. helping me make these, these decisions, right. Yeah. Has like, we talked about the decision to use fencing, to go to a good school. Right. I did not want to go to a state school. I didn't want right. to go to a state school. I knew I couldn't afford to go to like a $50,000 a year school. Yeah. So I'm like, I need a scholarship. Yeah. I was like, I have a plan in, in the classroom. I was that a really annoying kid who was like doing every single extra assignment and mm-hmm. making sure every single project was perfect and getting, right straight A's like that's just who I was they're like we don't hate her for the hijab we hate her because she's <laughs> she's an asshole suck up to the yeah, teacher basically, yeah basically right um, but then also Teacher's I was bad. I was mm-hmm. in a town where you know maybe 30 maybe 30 percent black kids um, but our classrooms were not reflective of that so okay. we have a leveling system in Maplewood South Orange where um, you have levels two three four five mm-hmm four or five being honors. If you go to an honors classroom, you have one or two black kids. That's it. Right. So this leveling and the way that they kind of broke up, you know, um, the classroom and these different classes and really it ended up being broken up by race. Uh, for me, it was like, I needed to be exceptional to be accepted and in the classroom and on, on the playing field as an athlete. Yeah. And I just, I think had gotten used to having to, outwork everyone around me mm-hmm. in order to be accepted. Yeah. It's kind of the dichotomy of obstacles where obstacles many times can be the reason for success. And many times we try to get rid of those obstacles at the same time. Mm-hmm. It's like, but you know, sometimes they're a good thing, you know? Yeah. These no, they can they, push you, but my yeah. thing is. It depends on the person. I think some obstacles are crushing for people. That's, and that's the problem. Yeah. It's like, so we have to make sure that when we do reach these obstacles and we're able yeah. to, you know, um, overcome them, we make sure we kind of break them down exactly. in the process to make sure that the people who aren't strong enough or don't have the will I, to overcome it, you know what I mean? I couldn't agree more. Um, I've always felt that way. I've always tried to help break down the obstacles that I've had. I said, just because I've been able to overcome them doesn't mean the majority of the yeah. people can. Nor does it mean that those obstacles need to exist in the first place. Right. Because there's already going to be a lot of obstacles to any kind of, of success or that type of thing. Mm-hmm. So you went to Duke. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How, how was your experience at Duke? Culture shock. Mm-hmm. I grew up in a bubble, right, where it's like I'd grown up with the same kids for so long. It's like at some point, you know, you feel mm-hmm. accepted and you feel like, um, I don't know, you get used to the people around you. And I get mm-hmm. to Duke and it, there's, it's, it just seems very fragmented in a way that it was hard space for me to navigate where 
the day one I get there, there's a kid with a Confederate flag hanging from his window. Right. Um, the black community is like, I'm, you know, I'm Jamaican. I'm Nigerian. I'm not regular black. And mm-hmm. I'm like, what the F does that mean? You mm-hmm. know what I mean? So there's even this hierarchy that exists within the black community yeah. um, that felt very superficial to me. Mm-hmm. And then I also had a really hard time even finding time to navigate that space because I was a full-time athlete. You're busy. I was busy. So I felt so disconnected from the social life at Duke, just trying to balance academics and sports. It's interesting how college, there's so much energy put into tribalism in college of people finding these settlements, you know, where they want to. It's like, I'm going to join this sorority or I'm going to join, you know, this club or I'm going to do this. And it's like, I didn't have time for any of that. I didn't do any of that. Yeah. That's what's going on. I found... And, you know, we talked about faith, right? And mm-hmm. this is something that I wanted to circle back to. You said how faith kind of, I don't know. I don't remember exactly what you said. Something about, like, grounding me when I was a kid. Sure. And it feeling, for me, it just felt very normal. Yeah, it gave you that tether to a normal life. That's your, um, it gives you a reason outside of yourself, I think, when you have faith that has a set of rules that you can abide by that helps you navigate your life in a certain way, you know. Right. And for me, I felt like I was almost following what I was told, mm-hmm. right? And when I got to college and I was the only the only person in hijab at Duke, I had to figure out why. And, and then you were living by yourself. It's mm-hmm. like, why am I praying? Why am I covering? Why do I believe in what I believe in? And these were questions I started to ask myself that I'd never asked myself in my life. And now you're at a different age. Uh, right. Different feelings, of course, in you at that age. Kids are acting out like never before right. on college campuses. Mm-hmm. You know, you talk about drinking sex and everything right. else. I'd never mm. I'd never been around alcohol before. Yeah. I'd never been around, like, cocaine. And, mm-hmm. like, these kids are doing, like, hard drugs. Right. And um, still somehow or another surviving Duke, which I thought was crazy. I know. That's the most amazing thing. I'm like, thing. how? I've never understood how? that, you know, how yeah. people can trash themselves completely. I was summa cum laude. How right. did you do that? Yeah. I'm like, no <laughs> drugs is struggling, right? Right, exactly. But, um, you know, I think that in having the opportunity to go away to school, I really found myself. Okay. I found the Muslim Student Association, which was, to me, initially not an inclusive space. There were girls there who didn't wear hijab who, like, Again, within the Muslim community, total judgment for women who sometimes that can exist between women who don't wear the hijab and women who wear hijab. What is that opinion? Is that an opinion? Does it feel like it's um, subjugating women? Is it keeping them in their place? Is that the opinion that— I think that sometimes people just feel really Mm self-conscious and have insecurities and they project it on other people. So Mm -hmm. in my instance, when I got to school, there were girls who didn't wear it who maybe— approached me with preconceived notions about who I was and what I thought about them for not wearing hijab. Mm-hmm. And the reality is, I could care less. You, I'm so say, not interested. The reality is like, try thinking about you. I got to right. practice. Right? I, well, also because I just, I don't care about the way other people lead their lives. And not yeah. that I'm, you know, vain or, you know, in some way feel better than other people that I can only focus on myself. My thing is that at the end of the day, I genuinely believe that we each have to answer to God for our own actions, Mm -hmm. right? And people should have the freedom to live their lives as as they want, as they wish. And I've always felt that way. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't care if people wear hijab or they don't. Um, My uh, And I think for me, for the Muslim community, it just felt like home in a way, even though I was, you know, the one of two black kids. Mm -hmm. 
I had one friend who played football at Duke who was Muslim, um, AB, who was from Staten Island Blackhead. And I'm like, come to Mus- like come to MSA with me, right? Let's be like two the two black kids. And he he came like once or twice, but then like trailed off. Mm-hmm. But um it's it's hard to be the only one, even in that space. So when I talk about being black within the Muslim community, it can also be really, really be difficult. Lonely. Yeah. Well, did you mix with non-black Muslims? Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. because the Muslim community at Duke is South Asian and Arab. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, where did you find most of your home then? In the fencing world or in the Muslim world when you were in college? Like what what felt more at home for you? Muslim Student Association really? by far. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because I would think at that age, it might have been fencing where you go, you know what? This feels good right here. So what's interesting about fencing at Duke, I left a space at Columbia High School where we were winning everything. Yeah. Where it was a very, um, a very like unified space. Mm-hmm. And it's easy, it's easy to have that when you're always winning. Everybody was yeah, that's really true. cool. Like. Yeah. We always won. I love my teammates. And then I go to a space where people are more focused on academics than they are on sports. No mm-hmm. one's there on scholarship. Not everyone's as good as I wanted to be. You know what I mean? Like, I had plans to keep getting better in fencing. Mm-hmm. Not everybody on Duke's fencing team cared, right? Okay. So some of them are walk-ons. Some of them are you know have different interests that aren't necessarily fencing-specific mm-hmm. interests. So— for me, I was always on time for practice, never missed a practice, uh, was All-American every year that I fenced, you know, had plans on winning NCAAs. Like, that was my plan. Right. You had the vision, clarity, and work ethic of a of an Olympic athlete. Right. And who even knew? Like, I, Olympics weren't even in my sight. Mm-hmm. I didn't know fencing— like, Olympic fencing was a thing. I didn't, mm-hmm. I didn't, I always thought of fencing again, like these different levels. When I started, it was like, I want to go to a good university, right? Right. At some point in my life, I think I was like 16, at a competition, a white parent came to me and she's like, did you know there are black people who fence in New York City? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, didn't know that. No, but, white lady, please tell me more. Right. No, white lady, how offensive. <laughs> but I went home and I Googled, like, black people fencing New York City. Right. And found a nonprofit in New York. And that was the first time in my life that I was exposed to fencing at the elite level, mm-hmm. that I was allowed to see black athletes who look like me, who were Olympians, who were world champions, who had all these medals. I didn't know that was a thing. Mm-hmm. Right? But it's almost like you can't believe, you can't be what you can't see. And to be exposed to that and see that, that's when I I think I unconsciously was graphing my aspirations as an athlete and yeah. starting to visualize as my Olymp- myself as an Olympic athlete without necessarily really thinking about it. Mm-hmm. And so when I graduated from Duke in 2007, middle of a recession, I'm black, I wear hijab. Mm. I graduate from grade school, grade GPA, studying for LSAT, um, looking for a job as a paralegal and can't can't get a freaking interview. Mm. So I And you have college debt, right? Did you have some college? I did have college debt. Mm-hmm. So I took my last name off my resume. Um you go, I th- I think Ibtihaj will get by them, right? Right. <laughs> I'm like, let me take Muhammad off the resume because right. for sure it's like it has to be that because Ibtihaj Wilkins, let's do you, that. You have yeah. no idea yeah. how I'm telling you. I'm I'm dot every i cross every t. I have a lit resume. I had great I internships the right. whole time I was in college. Great university, good GPA. I was like, I should be able to get a job. 
Yeah. Right. Till I go to law school. At this point, I'm working at a dollar store. Mm-hmm. And because um, my parents are like, no, you can't just sit around at home. Right. Working at a dollar store, I start fencing. And I'm going on interviews. When I took my last name off my resume and started using my first name, middle name, I started getting so many interviews. What's your middle name? Ines. Oh, okay. So they thought, oh, she's Hispanic. Right. Which really <laughs> means social in Arabic, but whatever. Right. So <laughs> I arrive at these interviews and it's like light bulb moment. I still wear this hijab. Like uh-huh. I'm this Muslim woman coming interviews. Don't get a job. So I don't even remember at what point I arrive at this moment where I realized there have never been a woman of color on the women's saber team. Mm-hmm. There's never Women's Sabre Olympic team? On the Women's Sabre national team, period. Mm-hmm. There'd never been a woman of color on the team. Got it. And there'd never been a Muslim woman on the U.S. Olympic team. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, hmm, this is, that's crazy. And I was like, I'm going to, you know, try my hand at it. Wow. I don't even, I'm telling you, it all has to do with like opportunity and right. kind of where you are in your life. I feel yeah. like. Had I gotten a job right as soon as I graduated, I would have done that same track that a lot of people do. I would have went to law school, right. got a job as an attorney, and that would have been that. I don't think I've—I've I've never thought of myself as a professional athlete. That was never the plan. And then the racers would argue, well, you made it this. It wasn't for right. <laughs> You should be thanking us. That's my racist voice, everybody. Thank you very much. That was really spot on, actually. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so I— didn't see that coming. Mm-hmm. I really didn't. And to kind of embark on this journey, you know, in spite of a lot of the pushback I was getting mm-hmm. from coaches, teammates who are like, you're too old. You know, we talked about age and you're like, oh, well, you started at 12, so you're relatively young. But I have Olympic teammates who were traveling the world by the time they were 13. Wow. Who were going to... Because there's levels to fencing. There's cadet, mm-hmm. there's junior. So cadets under 17, juniors under 20. Okay. And then the senior level is everybody else, right? Mm-hmm. So I have teammates who have been on cadet junior world championship teams since they were 13, 14 years old. Right. So imagine my first World Cup is at 23. Yeah. I'd never been to a senior competition. I had no world ranking. And I'm literally out there like on a prayer. It's like, who's this Odie McOld coming in here right. thinking she can fence? Oh, yeah. yeah. So I'm mm-hmm. out here just like trying to make it in a space that's very white. You have, we play a sport that's solely decided by a referee. So you have a referee wow. who does not it's like very you. very subjective then, oh, right? Oh, wi- yeah. my mom hates it, how wildly yeah. subjective my sport is. My mom hates it, like with a burning passion. She's like, why, why are you putting yourself through this? You have a guy. Because you're the one that put me in it in the first place. (laughs) It's like you have a guy who's like from Azerbaijan. Right. Who's like in the pocket of the Russians who doesn't want this American to win. So you lose. It's crazy. So this is like you're literally. Olympics, by the way. I'm telling you. Right. So you're literally like trying. I'm trying to make my name for. I'm trying to make a name for myself for a long time. Mm -hmm. And I make a decision in 2009 to change coaches. Mm Mm-hmm. I left a coach who was a misogynist, who was a Mm. sexist, who would— and I talk about this in my book. He used to kick me out of practice because he could. He would say, don't come back to practice until you bring me two packs of Titleist golf balls. And it's like, what? I don't have a job. 
And right? don't call me Tupac. Right? Right. No, Titleist. No, I know. Oh, I just sent an old like, airplane type thing. <laughs> I missed it. So, Sorry. That's all right. It went back kind of fast. <laughs> it's like. You can't repeat a joke either because right. then it's then, really then good. You... Then, then they go, oh, oh, okay. All right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm sad I missed a Tupac reference, yeah. but. Um, oh, you said two packs of golf balls. Oh, two packs. See how I did Swing that. and a so, miss. There you go. I got it. See, now that I have to explain it, right? it gets you more humiliation on the on the joke. There's someone more. laughing yeah. on the other end of this no, microphone. No, trust me, not at this point. There is not. <laughs> <laughs> There's people going, I wonder what Malcolm Gut was talking about on his <laughs> podcast right now. <laughs> See, that got a laugh, so I'm happy. I'm back again. There you go. All right, you were saying. So um, there were, I mean, I just feel like everything was kind of, there was so much pushback, right? right? I had this coach who clearly didn't want to coach me, clearly didn't like me. I made it clear. And oh yeah, yeah. I mean, ugh, what a mess. I think he, I think his his largest issue was that he didn't really like working with women. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, I decided to change coaches. Start working with a young coach, uh, Aki Spencer Eel, who was a 2000 Sydney Olympian, mm-hmm. and um, I was his first student. He was like the first day I worked with this guy. He said. I think you, he was like, I think you could be one of the best fencers in the world. That's awesome. Yeah. And I'm like, mm, okay. Right? I like you. I like you, right? <laughs> I'm like, man, this guy gets it, right. right? I mean, I hadn't thought of it that way, but I'm like, why not, right? Sure. I work pretty hard. Yeah. I'm like athletic. like, and, and for me, it was great to be with somebody who wanted to work with me. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, we were the first people in the gym, the last people to leave. Mm-hmm. And when I tell you that amount of grind um, that people don't see, there's something to be said to have people in your corner who believe in you, even in moments where you don't believe in yourself, you right. know? Absolutely. So, I mean, I made my first team right after that. As soon as I started working with him, like a year later, I was on my first national team, and I've been on the team ever since. So you went to a completely different level here now. You were obviously must have had some natural talent and probably, I'm sure some great hand-eye just naturally. And just being around winners. Imagine if I actually had good hand yeah, coordination, no, you right? have to I'd have, have an Olympic I'm gold sure medal and not a bronze. You're being very modest. I'm not. Yeah. I'm, a, I'm a girl from Jersey who was working hard. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. But um, I embark, I, I make my first uh, national team in 2010. And I'm in a space, again, you remember, first woman of color on the team. Mm-hmm. That's big for a fencing. And first, um, I'm traveling the world with these girls who not just are white, they don't want you there, mm. right? And they don't really uh, hide it. Yeah. Um, and and you, you were writing about, I think this is in your book, where it really had an effect on, on you, on oh, your yeah. emotional and mental life, you're saying, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. For like two years, yeah. I suffered from depression. Wow. And, and this is from being on a team, for goodness crazy. sake. Crazy. Yes. I didn't know. And mm-hmm. I didn't know it was depression. I didn't. I remember having conversations with my mom and saying, like, you know, I'm really sad. Mm-hmm. I'm fatigued. Like, some days I don't want to get out of bed. It was affecting your body. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And People I, don't realize that these uh, assaults on your psyche, on your, you know— even if they're verbal, they can have physical effects on your body, not just time. not just on how you feel. Yeah, that's why I tell people like, be careful what you watch, that's the exactly things right. you ingest. Like, it affects you whether you know it or not. Food's not the only thing that's going to change your body chemistry. Yeah. Oh yeah. So I, it was changing how not just I physically felt, but how I felt about myself. Mm-hmm. Imagine showing up to work every day and your boss telling you that you're not good enough. Well, I work in showbiz, so right? that happens all the time. <laughs> <laughs> right? You're not capable. You're not good enough. You're not right. strong enough. You know, and 
they would and it's say, not a coaching strategy. It's how they feel. Because sometimes coaches traditionally have used that tough approach. Mm-hmm. But in this case, they're actually being nasty. No, yeah. Right. The the coaching staff is like um, former, from a former Soviet country and I think is is very fixed in his way of how he thinks the team should look. Right. I don't fit into whatever that puzzle is. Right. And it's like, mm, I'm going, I'm, I don't really have a filter in how I say these things. So mm-hmm. I'm just going to continue to say what I want about you. And I think it was all done in an effort to hopefully, you know, uh, scare me off. From, so, so you'd leave. You'd so quit I'd and leave. it wouldn't be his fault. Right. So right. I always think, well, who have you done this to in the past? Like, who... If it, if it weren't me, right, if it were, if I didn't have the personality that I have, would I have left? Would mm-hmm. I have said, you know what, I don't have the tenacity, I don't have the mental fortitude to push through this space. Mm-hmm. And at some point in my career, I decided I don't care what they think about me. I'm not going to allow it to affect how I feel about myself. It is affecting my performance. I'm not competing as well. I think it's physically making me sick. Mm-hmm. And I had an epiphany. In 2015, right before Olympic qualifiers, I said to myself, no matter what happens, I'm going to be happy. I was very blessed to travel the world and compete with my sister, my sister Faiza, who has always been the wind underneath my wings. I mean, she is one of the kindest people that I know, but also Mm -hmm. even though she's six years younger, she's like a protector for me. She kind of shielded me from this stuff because it's like, she's my confidant. I could tell her anything. Uh Um, and then I have two best friends that one, I was fortunate enough to travel with my friend, Paola. She, I mean, we would be in the most random country. We'd be like, you know, in Shanghai, China on the street, trying food, walking around, trying to forget about the hell I had to go to, like, you know, in a few hours at practice with teammates who would not invite me to dinner, coaches who wouldn't tell me about practice, uh, team managers who wouldn't book my flight, stuff like that, you know? Yeah. That's terrible. And these people, you're all at the top of your game here in this situation. It seems so petty to me. It is. Fencing is an individual sport first. Mm -hmm. People are always looking out for themselves. Yeah. If they're telling you that's not true and they fence for the United States, they're lying. People are so Mm self-absorbed and trying to look out for themselves that they're that they don't care about the team and other people. You know, they they want to make sure they're on the team and they make the they make the team. Right. So if only three people get to go to the Olympics, I want to make sure that I'm besting you in every competition, mm-hmm. that I'm doing better than you in every competition. That's the mentality. And I learned, uh, and I think in just my experiences from being growing up in America as a black woman, growing up in America as a Muslim, um, it's like, you know what? I need to just focus on the things that I can control. I can't control how people feel about me. Right. I can't control about I can't control how someone else does in competition. So I've learned from a really young age to just focus on things I can control. Whereas I feel like it was something an, a leg up I had on my teammates in that they were focused on things they they had no control over. Mm-hmm. Like let's try to make her feel bad about herself. It's like, eh, I don't for me I don't have those same those same hang-ups because I've been black in America. I've been Muslim in America my whole life. Right. I know to focus. I know what to focus on at this point in my life, you know? Yeah. What gave you the idea to write the book, Proud? And it seems to me that most people, many people have like a dream, you know, uh, who are in your position, let's say, and their whole life is working towards this dream. But yours is different to me, you know. It seems like you had a sense of yourself, you know, and you decided to take a journey to 
manifest is the realization of, you know, going somewhere where you didn't know where that thing was, but mm-hmm. you bet on yourself, it seems like, at every mm-hmm. step of the way. Mm-hmm. So what is proud What is proud to you? What, what does that mean? What are you giving to people with this book? It is about self-determination. Mm-hmm. It is constantly pushing the envelope, not just challenging yourself, but challenging society and pushing past society's limited expectations of you. Mm-hmm. Society expects us to be one thing because we're black. Society yeah. expects us to be um, very limited things as people of color, as women, as religious minorities. And I've always been that person who's like, you have no idea what I'm capable of. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to show you not only how well I can do it, but that I can do it better than you can. Yeah. And I've hated to, I hate that idea of judgment and that people place judgment on others. I hate that. Like Mm -hmm. it's always irritated me from the time I was a kid because it was always like the little Muslim kid, right? Right. I've always been that person. Even within the Muslim community, I'm always the black kid, right? And it's like, I need to push past people's limited expectations that they have of me because I'm so much more than that. Yeah. And I think that with this book, it's not just about us as people of color. It's not just about being Muslim. It's about constantly challenging yourself and finding whatever it is that that God has gifted you that makes you great. I think mm-hmm. we all have something. Mm-hmm. I still feel like I'm trying to find out what my something is. Right. Right. But it's something that we should use as a vehicle to change the world for the better. Mm-hmm. There's so much that I love most about being an athlete is that the platform I've been given yeah. to use it as a voice for social change, for social justice, um, to speak on the issues within the fencing community that mm-hmm. I feel like no one knows. Mm-hmm. People have no idea this kind of stuff Yeah, you exists. never see breaking news. Scandal in fencing. Right. Yeah. Like there is... Fencing's ridiculous. It's like it is 2018. You guys need to get it <laughs> right. together, you know? Right. Um, but that was the catalyst in writing this book. It's like, it feels like a tell-all sometimes, right? Mm -hmm. Because people are like, that did not happen. I'm like, it did. This is my life. This is my life. This is 2018. This is all truth. There is no fluffing in this book. This is my reality. Like, I tell some really, like, heart-wrenching stories about, you know, management, team management, not booking a hotel for me. So me— calling my mom on FaceTime because my my Verizon phone doesn't work in Greece and having my mom then call my sister to change my flight home because the team manager has not booked a flight or booked hotel for me. These are the kind of things that I face as a black athlete on Team USA. Mm-hmm. Why? Why does that happen to us? Yeah. And what people need to realize is not just me. When you see sports of black athletes where there's only one in the pool or only one on the field, it's because there is pushback. There are people who don't want us there. Right. And there are a lot of untold stories that exist. And we have to expose them so that we start to challenge the people in place that are controlling that limited access that we give to certain underserved communities. Mm-hmm. Um but then also we make sure that there's change. Why is it like this in, yeah. in, in this day and age? It shouldn't happen this way. Yeah, I think it's powerful coming from a black Muslim female, that combination of factors, because it seems to me every one of those, there's a pushback. Mm-hmm. You know? Oh, yeah. I'm the trifecta. <laughs> you really are, right? you know. And mm-hmm. you put fencing in there, 
Right. <laughs> you know, what's the, how do how you say the fourth try? I, look, <laughs> I don't look, know what that I was is like, yet. Larry Wilmore would know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I have no idea what I, that you is. think I would know something <laughs> like that. Yeah. Um, but it's, I find your story so fascinating and so inspiring, you know, and, and I love that, you know, I guess the point I was trying to make were not necessarily your dream, but it's kind of your walk, let's say, you know. Um, but where your walk has you now, to me, I feel is going to be so much bigger than even what fencing has done for you. Um, when you talk about going to Rwanda, you know, and, mm -hmm. and what that's even, how that opens your eyes to different things, you know, and that sort of thing. And, and the, you know, when you see the world having come from where you are and seeing those types of things, what does that do to you? And you've joined things like Athletes for Activism, I think, or? Athletes for Impact. For Impact, that's mm -hmm. what it is. Yeah. Yeah. But, but it's an activist group for athletes. Oh, yeah. You know? mm -hmm. Do you see this as something that is where you're supposed to be in that lane? Mm. I feel like we, everything's happened, happens the way it's supposed to. Yeah. And when Muhammad Ali passed away, Mm -hmm. And I, as like a millennial, was able to see his life in a different light. Yes. I always knew him as this prolific boxer, right. but I didn't know all of the work that he did on the ground for like social reform. Mm -hmm. So for me, it's like a very easy decision to like use my platform for change. Yeah. And it's very frustrating as an athlete, especially when it comes from a smaller sport, to see athletes with larger platforms who are black, who are women— not do the same is so frustrating yeah. because it's like you have this opportunity to change minds and you don't use it in a way that's beneficial to people who don't have the same resources that you have, you know, the same financial resources that you have, um, who don't have the same experiences. It's frustrating. So I'm going to do everything that I can uh, to raise awareness where I can. Yeah. And I feel like that's something that I feel like I have to do not just as a Muslim, but I, I have to do because I'm black. Yeah. And, you know, that last part of it, the Muslim part, I think Americans, they really need to just stop it. Right. <laughs> seriously, just stop it, Like, guys. get it together. Seriously. Yeah. I mean, grow the fuck up, you know, <laughs> seriously. Yeah. You know, get an education. Learn what yeah. Learn what the rest of the world is. Well, for, so this yeah. is the problem, right? So I traveled to Rwanda last summer. You see a country that's experienced mm -hmm. such a horrific moment, right? Yeah. Course of a few days, a million people die. Mm -hmm. They don't sweep it under the rug in present-day Rwanda. don't talk about it. Right. That's what we do here. They don't not educate their youth about it. That's what we do here. There is so much education. They talk about the genocide every day. Mm -hmm. You have people who committed the genocide and people who lost every single family member living side by side. Right. And it is, it's a, it's a healing process that they're experiencing together. Yeah, like South Africa, the reconciliation movement. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's like you have to talk about it <clears throat> right. to make sure that history doesn't repeat itself. Yeah. Here, we see history repeating itself. Because we don't talk about it. We don't, we, there's Americans no education. Love history. Right. Like, <laughs> Make America great again. There's no education right. involved. Yeah. It's like, where, where are we going back to to make it great? Are we going back to us ripping babies from like the, the arms of, of the slaves? Are we going back to Japanese internment? Are we going back to killing off the Native Americans? Like, I'm sorry, where are we going back to? I know we're going to. We're going to go buy the book Proud. Can't wait. <laughs> and the Barbie. Yes, the and, the bar and the Barbie. You guys have to see this Barbie. It is yeah. amazing. Mm -hmm. um, Ibtihaj Muhammad, thank you so much for being here. Yeah. Uh, your story is so inspiring, and thank I think you. it's just at the beginning. Um, I can't wait to see all your next moves and everything. And uh, thanks for coming to Black on the Air. Thank you so much for having me.